children ages 3 to 6 can be dismissed to toddler church. Miss Connie's going to be doing toddler church this morning. So children ages 3 to 6 can be dismissed to the toddler church. And the rest of you, if you would, you can turn in your Bibles to uh, Revelation chapter 1 quickly. And uh, we'll uh, briefly look at Revelation 1 verse 19 as we recall where we are. And then we're going to move forward into 2 Peter chapter 1. But we have, been, we have started a, uh, a series on the book of Revelation back at the beginning of the year. And um, if you recall, I stated that um, for many years um, I've been asked different times to, to preach on the book of Revelation. And my comment has always been that I'd preach on it when I understood it. And so people have said, then what? You'll never preach on it. And I said, you're right. So, um, but a year and a half ago, closing on two years ago now, I felt like the Lord just really burdened my heart that um, I needed to start preaching on in January 2009. So I don't know why, and I can't tell you exactly that I have all the, the answers coming through Revelation, but it's a journey that we're taking together. And as we begin this journey, we saw that in Revelation chapter 1, verse 19, that Jesus himself gave us a, an outline. So if you look at verse 19, Jesus tells John to write the things which you have seen and the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. And so, he gives them three categories of things that John was supposed to write about. The first thing was the things that have been, and that's John's, the message to John there in chapter 1. And then secondly, what we spent the last month and a half, two months on, is the things that are, and that is the message to the churches. And now we're going to begin looking at that third category, which actually begins in chapter 4 of Revelation, and that is a message of the future. And so we're going to begin looking at this message of the future. But my comment has been that I don't, I don't think that many people fully understand the book of Revelation because they haven't laid the foundation of the rest of God's revelation. That this isn't the only book of Revelation, quote-unquote, but rather the entire Bible is a book of Revelation. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's the revelation of God and His plan for man. And that this final book of the Bible is only written upon the foundation of the rest of the Bible. And so I think that many people misunderstand some of the prophecies that are recorded in here because they haven't laid the proper foundation of the rest of the Revelation. I hope that makes sense. And so we want to begin looking at that today. And today we want to begin looking at the nature, the message of the future, by looking at the nature of prophecy. And so if you would, turn back to 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter 1. We're going to be reading the context of our memory verse for the month. And looking at many passages today and through the next couple weeks. But first, as we do this, we're going to be looking at the nature of prophecy today. Beginning next week, we're going to be looking at the conveyance of that prophecy. And as we look at the conveyance of that prophecy, Lord willing, Lord willing, we're going to break this down into a couple weeks. And so I... No promises. Remember I said when we started the, the message to the churches that I was hoping to do that in two or three weeks and that became seven weeks. So, anyways, but the, uh, the idea is that first we're going to be looking at the covenants. We're going to be looking at prophecy via the covenants and how God has declared via the covenants that he made with um, some of the patriarchs and stuff of uh, what he would be doing. And then we're going to be secondly looking at it via Daniel. And so there is so much prophecy in the book of Daniel that relates to the end times, which is what we're looking at now that we want to look at that. Thirdly, via other prophets, and that is Zechariah, Isaiah, Hosea, 
um, in other prophets as well. So that's going to be a just a really meaty, all these are going to be meaty messages, but that's going to be a really meaty, because I'm going to try to do all those other prophets in one Sunday. Needless to say, if there's a Sunday that's going to be one of dividing into two, that one. And Daniel might want to be divided into two as well, because there's so much in Daniel as well. Then we're going to look at Jesus. That kind of makes sense, doesn't it? To, to kind of look at what Jesus himself said about the end times. And that's going to be going back to Matthew 24, which is where our Bible reading was this morning. We're going to be kind of glancing at it this morning quickly. Um, but we're going to go back and just look at Matthew 24 as a whole and some other related passages. And then finally, we're going to look at it via Paul. And so what did Paul say in to, to the church of Corinth, to the church of the Thessalonians and such? And so we're going to look at all those other passages. So hopefully in five weeks, six weeks from now, we'll actually get back into the book of Revelation in chapter 4, having laid a scriptural foundation, the scriptural basis for the book of Revelation. Now, again... I don't make no promises. That could wind up being three months from now. But anyways, um, we'll only go according to words, God's word. Okay? So today we want to look at then the nature of prophecy. And so here in 2 Peter chapter 1, we want to begin reading at verse 13. Okay? Where Peter is encouraging the brethren regarding the things that are going to come upon them. And so he starts off in verse 13 saying, Yes, I think it is right. As long as I am in this tent to stir you up by reminding you, knowing that surely I must put off my tent, just as our Lord Jesus Christ showed me. Moreover, I will be careful to ensure that you always have a reminder of these things after my decease. Okay, what's Peter telling him? I'm about to die. I'm about to die, and I want to make sure that before I die, what? Do what? That you what? That you know. Okay? That you know these things. Well, what's that he wants, wants us to know? Verse 16. For we do not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Well, when was Peter an eyewitness of his majesty? Well, verse 17. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice, which came from heaven, when we were with him on the holy mountain. Stop for a moment. When did that happen? Do we know that that happened? We know that it happened. When did it happen? Not when he was baptized, no. He said it when they were on the holy mountain, there was the Mount of Transfiguration. That's what we call it. We call it the Mount of Transfiguration. When Jesus was transfigured in their midst. What was Peter, James, and John doing at that time? They were napping. They were, they were sleeping. Remember, they all had to wake up. And so they beheld this thing, right? And so they beheld it. And Peter, the one who's writing now, says what? Lord, we should make three tabernacles here. One for Moses, one for Elijah, and one for you. And then the voice came from heaven and said what? You got it wrong, Peter. This is my son. This is my son. Those two guys... They're prophets. But this is my son. Now on the way down from the mountain, as they were on the way down the mountain, Jesus told Peter, James and John, something. I'm testing your Bible memory here. Okay, you can go check this out later on. What did he tell them? Does anybody remember? Your mama, what did he say? Don't tell anybody. Don't tell anybody. But that's not all he said. Don't tell anybody till when? 
until the time is right, until after I've been resurrected. Okay? They hadn't got a clue what all that was going to be about. You know, Jesus dying and coming back and rising from the dead and all that kind of stuff. And so he, but he tells them, don't say anything about what you saw until afterwards. And so here's Peter fulfilling what Jesus declared that he should do. And so Peter undoubtedly has been stating this with his mouth. He's been telling everybody. He's been an eyewitness. He's been a, a legal testimony about what he saw. But now he knows he's getting ready to die. And with him, with his death, goes what? The testimony. And so he's writing it down. So there's a testimony from him about what he saw. And what he saw was this divine glory. Now, we go on. He says, um, and we heard his voice, verse 18, which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. And so we have the prophetic word, what? Confirmed. We have the prophetic word confirmed, assured, um, sealed, surety, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Now, as we look at this, we see, first of all, in this divine nature of prophecy, which is the first thing we're going to look at here, is the divine nature of prophecy, is the origin of prophecy. Peter's talking about the origin of this prophecy. Where did he say that prophecy comes from? It comes from God. Okay? He says, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation, for prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. It is not of human origin, first of all. It's not of any private interpretation. This is important to us. Because as we lay the foundation looking to the book of Revelation, many times as we look at eschatological teachings, what you read and hear a lot of times is, I think. I think. I think. I think. Now, you're going to hear that some of the times when I even do this, okay? Because you can't be away from it. However, true prophecy doesn't come by what? Private interpretation or the interpretation of man. But rather, as we saw in Sunday school over the last couple weeks, we're supposed to compare what? Spiritual things with spiritual things. And so we don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to have a private interpretation. Now, I know that as I go to certain things in the book of Revelation, that the views that I hold potentially are going to be a little bit different than what you might have heard before. I don't want to have them just because I want to be different. Does that make sense? And so I struggle with myself, and I challenge myself, and I go back and forth on these things, and, you know, but if the scripture declares it, then I want to believe it. Okay? And so we'll just say they're going in. So it's not a private interpretation. I want to be careful that as I go into it, and I want you to be careful as we go into this, that we're not looking for our own little interpretations of this stuff. What's it mean to me? But rather, prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit, and so we want it to be, as prophecy is, of divine origin. 
Because prophecy, the declaring of what will happen, or the declaring of God's message, is really what prophecy is. Some of the declaring of God's message is foretelling the word of God, and some of it is foretelling the message of God. Does that make sense? In a sense, I am expressing a prophetic gift right now, if you would, by declaring the word of God. Okay? That is prophecy, as we read it in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 14. But there is also the foretelling, that is, declaring new revelation from God, and that is the gift of prophecy as well. Hopefully that's not what I'm doing right here. And so, because I don't believe that that's happening right now. So anyways, um, so it's not of human origin. It is of divine origin. So secondly, though, we want to look at the confirmation of this prophecy. Because we read here that we have this prophetic word, what? Confirmed. Confirmed. King James says that we have this sure message, this sure prophecy. Again, it's the word um, that we look at. We've been talking a lot about the, um, the plumb line. Okay? This message is, is true. This message has been confirmed. This message is, is sealed. This message is right. And it says, so with this confirmation then, what does it have? Well, first of all, the object of the confirmation is Jesus Christ himself. If you go back before where he states this, the whole thing was about what? What did we just talk about? What did Peter see? The glory of Jesus Christ, right? And so Jesus' glorification was a confirmation of what? All the prophecy that had gone before regarding who Jesus Christ would be. And so prophecy is confirmed in the presence of Jesus Christ. Okay? Follow this through. But in cyclical reasoning, Jesus Christ is confirmed through what? Prophecy. We talked about this a few weeks ago. Do you remember the illustration I, I gave you about how the, the Russian spy and that went go, going down to Mexico City and how they were going to give the data to him? But neither one, neither the, the, the Russian secretary knew the, the spy who didn't know the other. And so there were seven things that were, were given to them as far as how they would find each other. First it was the place, and then it was what they were going to wear and what he was going to carry, and so on and so forth. And if those seven things matched up, and then they were going to say something to each other, if those seven things matched up, then it had to be each other. So that's just seven, seven items, statistically, that would allow two people from two different parts of the world to know exactly who each other were. There are countless prophecies regarding Jesus Christ. His birth, his life, his death, his resurrection. All of them have been fulfilled in Christ. And so, there is two sides then. Jesus Christ, in the, in the word that, that God declared, that prophetic word that God declared to Peter, confirmed who Jesus was, but the reality is that the prophetic word as well is a confirmation by itself. Of what? What does prophecy confirm? I just told you one. That is what? Jesus Christ. Okay? The validity of who Christ is. Okay? What's a, what's a name that, we, that, that is declared about Jesus Christ? What is he called? Son of God. Okay? How about, how about John 1? 
the Word of God. Okay? In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, we know that He is the living Word, but we also have what? The written Word, which is the embodiment of the revelation of the living Word, if you would. And so, prophecy, think about this. The Word of God is testified by, is um, confirmed by the prophecies that are in it. Okay, we're going to talk about purpose a little bit later on, not a whole lot, but, but there is a purpose for prophecy. How do you know that Nostradamus is a false prophet? Because his stuff didn't come true. That's not true. There's a lot of things that Nostradamus has claimed has come true. There's a lot of things that Gene Dixon has proclaimed that has come true, right? But not all of it. And so, um, we have the effect of confirmation. We'll come back to this. But in Deuteronomy 18, verse 21 to 22, we read, If you say in your heart, how shall we know the word which Yahweh has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of Yahweh, in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not happen or come to pass, that is the thing which Yahweh has not spoken, therefore the prophet has spoken presumptuously, and you shall not be afraid of him. What's saying? If someone says, thus saith the Lord, and it doesn't come to pass, what is he? He's a false prophet. And if we did the greater context of this, what does it tell us to do with a false prophet? Stone him. Stone him. Kill him. If you killed him, think about it. If somebody declared that God said this was going to happen and didn't happen, and then you stoned him, how many more false prophecies would he make? Okay. But we have a lot of false prophets out there today that are continuing to make false prophecies. Why? Because we haven't stoned them. There was, there's a, um, there was a guy named Wisnut. Um, Ken Wisnut? Um, I'm trying to think of his first name. Anyways, I was in seminary back in 1988. and I, I went, not 88. Yeah, 88. From 87 to 90. And um, he came out with a book, this guy named Wisnut. I can't remember his first name. 88 Reasons Why Christ Will Come in 1988. Does anybody remember that book? Okay. Did Jesus come in October of 1988? He didn't. You know what happened in 1989? There was another book that came out. It was called 89 Reasons Why You'll Come in 89. <laughs> I never saw the book 90 Reasons, though. I think he stopped it. We, in, in, when we were in seminary, the biggest joke, you know what the 89th reason was? Because he didn't come in 88. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if it really was. But anyways, I'm sorry. I should, I don't like making fun of people, because clearly you can make fun of me. So anyways, but it was always a how. I mean, it's just... Um, but, at that moment, if somebody declared a date and a time... Now, I'm going to be sharing some things this morning that are going to, you're going to think, Hey, Bob, listen to what you just said early on, okay? So I do remember what I said early on, so just kind of hang on with me here. But, clearly, Wisnet was what? False prophet. If we lived in the Old Testament days, would he have ever made a prophecy about 1989? No. <laughs> so, anyways, so we need to remember that, and we need to be careful ourselves, going back to the private interpretation stuff as well. So the object, the object of, of the confirmation, if you would, of prophecy, is it gives testimony, it gives credence to the message of God. Okay? God's word is confirmed because all these prophecies that God has declared, what has happened? They've come true. Why do you believe that Nostradamus is a false prophet? Hasn't some of the things that he's declared potentially, if you would, come true? Yes. 
A lot of them in generalities, and you know, he could have a pig going in the mud, and it would come true. Anyways, but there are other things that he gave more specifics about that what? That didn't come true. The same with, uh, what's the, um, Edward Case, Casey's, uh, Ed, Edgar, Edgar Casey, Gene Dixon. There's all these, these pro prognosticators that are out there. That's exactly, who did you say? Joseph Smith. Joseph Smith. Um, so many of these, these people that are out there. The Jehovah Witnesses. One of the greatest things that you need to talk to Jehovah Witnesses about is Jesus coming back. I think it was 1914. Am I, am I right on that date? It's, it's, in, it's in the teens, 19-something like that. They, they swear that Jesus came back, and, then, and they're not going to turn from it. Now, some will turn from it, but that was the prophecy that they had. It's written down that Jesus came back, and so many of them still hold to the fact that he came back, and he didn't come back. I mean, you know he didn't come back. It's, it's nuts stuff. Anyways, and so they're false prophets. So anytime a Jehovah Witness comes to your door, you need to remember that they need to be Stone, but don't do it because they'll throw you in jail. Okay? So they're, 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 they're false prophets that are coming to your door. But what's the effect? Okay? Going back then to, to this point, we had the effect of the confirmation. Well, what does he say about, and this may be AFF instead of EFF. I always get effect and effect backwards. Okay? What's the effect of the confirmation? And that is that you should do well to what? Heed. It, as a light that shines in a dark place. So that as we consider the purpose of prophecy, we were told, do you remember back in Revelation chapter 1, blessed is the man that what? Reads, and those that hear the words of this prophecy, and keep the things that are written in it. We do well to listen to the prophetic message. Because it gives us testimony that the rest of these things are true. People who pick and choose what they want to believe from the Word of God undermine the entire authority of the message of salvation. If God's prophecies, and this is straight up, if God's prophetic word doesn't come true, then hear what I'm going to say. It's not God's prophetic word. And the basis of your faith is then held in jeopardy. Because think about it. What is the testimony of your faith? It's God's word, isn't it? Okay? I mean, why do you believe that Jesus died on the cross for you? Why do you believe that while you were yet sinners, Christ died for you? Why do you believe that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life? Why do you believe that God loved the whole world and gave His Son? Why do you believe that He's not the propitiation for our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world? Because I came up with it, right? Because you're followers of Bob Corbin instead of Joseph Smith. It's not the case, is it? We believe it because God's Word declares it. And God's Word is confirmed of His truth. That's exactly right. And his truth is confirmed through his prophetic truth. And so, so it's important for us. So we have a divine nature of, of prophecy. Okay? Uh, I got myself a little button up there, don't I? Let's get rid of that little button. Glasses <laughs> ah. on. Uh, 
technology. You can always outsmart technology. Okay, so let's move on. So now we're going to move into the progressive nature of prophecy. We looked at the divine nature of prophecy. We know it's of God. The progressive nature of prophecy. This is important. First Peter, chapter one. Let's turn there. First Peter, chapter one. And what progressive the progressive nature refers to is the thing that we refer to as progressive revelation, and that is that that as history has gone on, that God has increasingly revealed more and more about Himself, and then about His plan. Okay? And so we know more and more about God and more and more about what God has, his plan is. And so in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10, we read, Of this salvation, the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ, who was in them, was indicating when he testified beforehand the suffering of Christ and the glories of what would follow. What's being stated? These prophets who prophesied of these messages, they themselves had no clue of when the things were going to come about. But they then turned around and did what? Searched the rest of the prophecies, trying to piece together the puzzle that they could figure out God's timing and when the, when the timing would be. Turn to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians 3. And we'll be coming back to this chapter later on um, when we get into the book of Revelation more. But in Ephesians 3, 1 to 9, Paul gives an interesting statement as well. Ephesians 3, beginning verse 1, he says, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ, or Christ Jesus, for you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the dispensation of of the grace of God, which was given to me for you. How that by revelation he made known to me the mystery, as I have briefly written already, by which, when you read it, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and of partakers, of his promise in Christ through the gospel, of which I became a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given to me by the effective working of his power. To me, who am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God, who created all things, through Christ Jesus. Paul's saying, listen, I have been given the privilege of being a steward of the mysteries of God. We just looked at that in Sunday school, 1 Corinthians chapter 4. And the word for dispensation here can also be translated as stewardship. Okay? And so, there is a system of theology, if you would, that's called dispensationalism. And dispensationalism goes along this line of progressive revelation where they where they state that, and I'm a dispensationalist, that, that God has, throughout the ages, had periods of stewardship where he has tested man, but in that time he has also given man new revelation. And as he has given man new revelation, he has held him accountable to that revelation, and he has placed a test before them, and man ultimately, in every one of those dispensations, has failed. And that has come, had to come to him by his grace. 
And so the first dispensation is the dispensation of innocence. And that is when God created Adam and Eve and he placed them in the garden. There was a stewardship that was given to Adam and Eve at that time. God gave them prophecy, if you would. He gave them a, a, a revelation at that time. Okay, And the revelation was that there were two trees in the garden. Yes? There was a tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the command that he gave to Adam was what? You can eat of any tree you want except for the tree of death, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So you have the tree of life and the tree of death. And God told him what? Choose life. Choose life. Now, he didn't necessarily say it that way, but he said that you can eat of any tree. So if they could eat of any tree, they could have eaten of the tree of life. But don't eat of the tree of death. I don't want you to eat the tree of death. But God allowed it in there because God made man to have a choice, a decision. What did man, that was the test, that was the, the thing that was laid out there. What did man choose? Death. Man chose death. And in each dispensation, as we've gone on, and I don't want to get off on dispensationalism because that's not what this message is all about. But as we go through the different dispensations, God has continually left then this test that was before, and man has continually chosen death. Man has not chosen life, but has chosen death. And so, in fact, the same thing comes then even now, that man out there can choose what? Can choose life. How do you choose life? Through Christ Jesus. And so, but I can't do it on my own, can I? My righteousness is like what? A filthy rag. And that's the purpose of the law. The law was, is a schoolmaster, is a tutor to teach me that I can't do it on my own. No matter how good I am, I always fall short of the glory of God. I fall short of the mark. And so, there is this thing then called progressive revelation, which I, I like to refer to as that, and, and the progressive nature of prophecy. And that is that Moses understood more about God's plan than Adam did. Daniel understood more about God's plan than Moses did. Peter, James, and John understood more than Daniel did. And I challenge you, there's the potential that we know more right now, because of all their testimonies combined, than even Peter, James, and John did. Because all they knew was what was what? Declared to them. And they had to piece it all together. The book that we are studying, I know we're doing a little off-tangent thing here, but what book are we studying? The book of Revelation. Who is the human author? Who was the, the, the scribe? John. Where was John at when he wrote it? The island of Patmos. Where was Peter? Dead. Did you get it? So even some of the, writing, some of the readings that we have of Peter and Paul, they weren't even there when John wrote. To whom much is given, much will be required. And so we have these mysteries, as Paul was referring to, that Paul was given the privilege of, of revealing to us and to those who were reading at that time the mysteries of what God had planned. Something that even in the other ages, even from the beginning of creation, they hadn't known. Daniel didn't have a clue about something. He may have had an inkling. In the book of Isaiah, there are clear indicators that it was going to happen. But they didn't know. They hadn't 
We're able to piece it all together. And as we look in the book of Daniel, we'll see that God says what? Seal up the vision until when? The time of the end. Which means that in the end times, what's going to happen? Certain things are going to be revealed. Okay? So let's go on. We have this progressive nature of prophecy. And thirdly, we want to look at the systematic nature of prophecy. First of all, in this, we know that there is an order. God is not a God of chaos. Rather, he's a God of order. And so we read in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 32 and 33, in the context of the use of gifts and discussing the use of prophecy, okay, that, that Paul writes by the power of the Holy Spirit, and the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets, for God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. And so the idea there, and I'm drawing a little bit out of context, if you would, okay, and I'm, I'm admitting that, but it's a principle that is there in that, in that point, and that is that if all prophecy, as we read in 1 Peter, is of no private interpretation, but actually comes from God, then the spirit of the prophet, being subject to the prophet, if he's really a prophet of God, then who is it really subject to? His own spirit? The Holy Spirit. Do you, do you get it? Okay. And so, so we have the spirit of the prophet being subject, being subject to the prophet, so that a prophet, if he's truly of God, is not going to give something of his own private interpretation. He's not going to go off on his own on a tangent. And the, the literally, the context is saying then that if somebody in the church is, is standing up declaring the message of God and somebody else has something, and I've shared with, with, with you, and, and I, if, if this ever happens, I want you to do this. Don't feel repressed. Don't feel suppressed. Don't feel like you can't do this. This is not Bob's show. Okay? This is God's. And if, if I'm teaching sometime and God really is giving you insight on something that right here, and that I'm missing it, and I'm not sharing it, I'd like you to put up your hand, guys, and share with what God is working in you on it, okay, if there's a question, if I miss something, put up your hand and say, Bob, but what about, because this stuff is important, and if I am really honestly teaching the message of God, then what am I going to be able to do? Stop for a moment, and allow God's message to be declared. But if I can't allow somebody else to speak, then whose message is it really? Mine. And there's a balance there, okay? Because there's also control. First Corinthians, not control. Um, that's not the word I wanted to use. There's uh, order in, in the, order and control. In, in, the, in the assembly as well. And so it can become mayhem and people just get up and do whatever. But there's a balance that's there, okay? And so, because God, as a basis of all that, is God is not the, the author of what? Confusion. And so take the principle now and bring it to prophecy as a whole in Scripture. Would God then give prophecy back in the book of Job that contradicted prophecy that he was going to give through Christ in Matthew 24? Not at all. Because all God's word is true. And so, therefore, there will be a consistency, if you would, in order in what God has declared. And so, that's a very important thing, that there is order. And so, therefore, we want to go back all the way to the beginning in this progressive nature of prophecy, in this systematic understanding of prophecy, to go back then and be able to bring forward and understand, well, what is then that order? What is that plan? What is that? And secondly, there is a, a purpose. We talked about this a little bit 
from the, the passage in First Peter, or Second Peter, and what is the purpose of prophecy? Well, first of all, it is to confirm the message of God. Okay? But ultimately, what is the message of God that comes throughout all the, all the Word of God? What's the message? Come on, there's a lot of murmuring, but no one's... Salvation, yes! It's soteriological. It's, that, it's the redemptive message that God loves you and He wants to have fellowship with you. Now, there's the glory of God, I understand that, but God receives His glory by what? Through His grace, by giving us salvation through His grace. God doesn't force it on you. If, if There is a thing out there called ubiquitous computing. Has anybody heard, ever heard of ubiquitous computing? I'm really surprised because it's been out there for a while. And I'm surprised you haven't, Nathan. Anyways. Um, but out in Xerox, the Xerox um, Park Triangle, Xerox Research Park out in California, um, is where they started this thing. It was probably, probably a dozen years ago, probably about 12, 10, 12 years ago. Anyways, um, and ubiquitous, the word ubiquitous means seemingly everywhere present. God is omnipresent. Satan is ubiquitous. Satan seems to be everywhere, but we know he's a created being, so therefore he's not, right? But God is everywhere present. So ubiquitous computing means that it seems that computers are everywhere. It's starting to look like that, doesn't it? But in this office complex, this is 12 years ago, they were. Everything was computerized. The walls were computerized. The ceilings were computerized. When someone put the coffee pot on, there was a, a um, one of those red lights that I have here, infrared light that... that beamed to the ceiling. There was a sensor up there. It, it, it understood it. It sent it to the main computer. And on everybody's screen at that moment, there was a little icon that came up of a coffee pot. It let you know that at that moment, coffee was brewing. And so in another minute and a half, two minutes, you could go down to the break room and have fresh coffee. In this... Isn't that awesome? No, it gets better than that. In this office, they also didn't have phones that just rang in your office. Rather... They had ubiquitous telephones as well because the telephone system was, was tied into the computer system. And so you didn't just have a phone in your room. You actually had a ring, Pavlov's dog, right? Anyways, and so my ring might have been bring, bring, and Steve's could have been bring, bring. And so you'd all just have to know what your little tone was. And so now with all the ringtones and everything, probably everybody got to pick their own ringtones. It's like being at a minor league baseball game and everybody, all these batters getting to pick their own songs before they get to hit. Anyways. And so, so whenever you heard your little ringtone go off, you would know that that call was for you. And so you're standing here in this office, and all of a sudden you hear, uh, we'll say Amazing Grace is my ringtone. All of a sudden I start hearing, Amazing. And I think, what? I don't want to answer the phone. And so I, I, I leave the room, and I go to another office. But what happens to that office? It's ringing, Amazing Grace. Because the computer knows where I'm at. You know how I knew where I was at? Because everybody had on a, a little ID tag. And in the ID tag is exactly what you're, you guys in the military are, are seeing right now. You have a little chip. And on that little chip, all the walls having sensors in it knew exactly where you were. I always wondered how many guys stuck theirs, you know, in the uh, restroom. Anyway. <laughs> Anyways. But an amazing thing, so this whole thing was ubiquitous. This whole thing was there. Now, it, you say, where are you going with this? Now, ubiquitous computing. 
So I'm a computer guy. I love computers. I'm trying to teach myself JavaScript, and, and now I've got to teach myself Drupal, please. And uh, anyways, uh, Nathan's been good for me. Nathan's been bad for me. Anyways, and so he's uh, really deflating me. I mean, I'm learning HTML. I, I've, I've taught myself HTML, and I'm trying to teach myself JavaScript, and now I find out that JavaScript is obsolete, too. Anyways, so anyways, I'll, I'll get there. Eventually, one day, that, that, that obsolete curve will be closing in again. And... Uh, but anyway, so I've, I've, I've programmed the, the facility here so that it's, we have ubiquitous networking going on. And as we walk in the door one day, we're walking in together, and as we walk in the doors, you hear the walls beginning to resound with praise. Praise be to Bob! Glory to Bob! Bob is the creator! And your first reaction is, whoa, this is weird. Anyways, and... Uh, I mean, you're kind of awestruck by the fact that this would even happen. Think about it. I mean, how many times have you ever heard that in a building? When you walked in with a building, all of a sudden the whole building began to resound with praise toward the person who was walking in. And so your first thing would... Then your second thought process would be, this guy's got a big ego. Anyways, but there would be semi-impressiveness at that point. Now, let me ask the question. When we walked in, the, in this building then, and you were with me, and, and all of a sudden the walls began to resound with praise toward me, was I being worshipped? Yes, I was. There was worship that was happening to me. But was it true worship? No, it wasn't true worship. Why wasn't it true? I programmed it to do it. Now, now let's say we walk in tonight. We have care group going on. And you're Meredith. Meredith hasn't been here with our, our body. And so I'm prepping you now, okay? So you know what you're supposed to do tonight. No, no, anyways. Um, but I walk in with Meredith. Okay? And, and as I walk in with Meredith, somebody comes walking up to me and says, Bob, you know, I really appreciate what you've done for me this week and the time that you spent and, you know, the restoration of the marriage. It's, it's never, it's, it, I just praise God. And then, and I say, oh, you're, you're welcome. We just continue moving on. And somebody else comes up and they say, Bob, man, I just glorify God for the work that you've done in my life and the salvation that he's given me by using me and da 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 Now, we'll stop there, okay? I don't want to become too egotistical by myself. Anyways. But let's say that happens. And roles could be reversed. It could be me with you. Okay, whatever. Am I, in a sense, receiving adoration and somewhat worship at that moment? And the answer is, yes. Is it true? Yes. Why? Because it comes from the heart. I didn't program it. Now, if it happens tonight, I programmed it. I prepped you. Okay, so it's not true. Anyways, but... But if it, was, if it wasn't a set-up situation, the reality is that the glory that I received, in a minor sense, and though I, on a human plane I want to reflect it, okay? But understand the illustration. That glory is true. It's, it's heartfelt. It's from your own will. The purpose of God throughout His Word is that He be glorified. The glory of God. But God receives the greatest glory through his redemptive work. So that when we who are redeemed, when we who are saved by his grace receive that redemption, what do we seek to do? Give him the glory. But if I'm only programmed to do it, is it really true worship? It's not. Do you get it? And so the whole purpose of of this prophecy coming through is to confirm the redemptive message that God has given to us so that people would receive it and ultimately do what? Glorify God. There's a purpose. 
This isn't, God just isn't haphazard by putting these things together. And as we begin to look at the end times then, okay, I mean, because there are some prophecies that refer to Jesus' birth and stuff like that, but the prophecies that we're going to be looking at right now are really more the ones that are focusing on the end times. God has a purpose all the way from the beginning, and we're going to look at this in a moment, all the way from the beginning that God has got a purpose, and God has been already declaring what he was going to do, when he was going to do it, and how he was going to do it. It's not haphazard. That leads us to our third point. And that is, there is a timetable. Now, I do remember what I said way back in the beginning. Okay? And we're going to look at two points here. So, kind of flow with me here. First of all, we want to look at the hidden nature of prophecy. The hidden nature of prophecy. Jesus said in Matthew 24, and we read it this morning, Steve read it this morning in, the, in our scripture reading this morning, in the little segment. It says, Assuredly I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. But of that day and hour, what day and hour? When all this happens, okay, when my return, when I come back, when, of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. So what do we glean from this? What do we glean from this, this statement of Jesus Christ? Referring to the end times. Say again. There's a time set. It's going to happen when God said so. But, but no one knows the, the day or the hour that it's going to occur. And so in Acts 1 verse 6 and 7. Jesus says to his disciples then as well. Because now he's ascended. And they, they're, they're, they're wondering is this the time right? And he says therefore when they had come together. They asked Jesus saying Lord. Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, again, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has put into his own authority. It's not for you. Now, the question you have to ask yourself is who is you? Who is you? Is, is you the twelve or the eleven at that moment that were standing around him? Or up to the 120 that were in the upper room? Or is the you all believers throughout all ages, including us today? There's a debate there, isn't there? I think sometimes we fully misunderstand and we take things as an application to us that weren't necessary to us. Now you're starting to think, oh, Bob, you're going on the deep end here. Okay? But hang with me for a moment because... I do believe that no man knows the day or the hour. I believe there is a hidden nature of prophecy, but I believe, secondly, that there is a revealed nature of prophecy as well. And I don't get this on my own authority. I believe that God has declared it in his word. So you say, where? Well, that same passage that we just looked at, Matthew 24, verse 33 to 36, I didn't read to you verse 33 there. I only read to you verse 34 to 36 because that's the passage we always talk about, that no man knows the day or the hour. But look at what Jesus said in verse 33. So you also, when you see all these things, know that it is what? Near. It's at the door. Jesus said there are going to be things that happen that are going to be indicators that my return is near. That it's going to be at the door. That you should be 
awake and alert and understanding. In fact, in 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 to 6, we're told by Paul through the power of the Holy Spirit, but concerning the times and the seasons, that's the end, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of the light and sons of the day. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. Now, back in Matthew 24, the reading from this morning, Steve read, right after that passage that we read, No man knows the day of the hour, but my father only. What, what illustration does Jesus give the people, the disciples at that time? No, before that? Before that? No, before that? You missed it. How about Noah? Oh, yeah, Noah, Noah. Now, I mean, there's a time when nobody knew when he was coming, right? I mean, they were all eating and drinking and, and giving in marriage and marrying, and they're partying, and all of a sudden, when they didn't expect it, the flood came upon them, and they all got killed. Ah, did they all get killed? They didn't all get killed. Who all got killed? The ones who were not what? Waiting and watching. Rather, there were four gentlemen, a dad and his three sons, who spent 100 to 120 years building a boat. I mean, and it was a boat and a half, wasn't it? It was a football field and a half long, 150 yards long, and it was a football and a field lengthwise, widthwise, wide. So if you can kind of do this, 75 yards wide. So if you take, you know how you can do that with the, the, the computers now, and you take a picture and you kind of take the corner and kind of drag it this way and it, and it opens up by scale. So if you take a football field and you kind of drag it open to half its length and width, that's how big the ark was. And there were three stories. Four guys built it. Now I kind of wonder whether Noah was even a carpenter to begin with. You know? I mean, I can tell you ten years ago, if, you, if God told me to build an ark, I'd be... I don't think so, God. But now, I wouldn't necessarily feel as intimidated. I would still not know having the plans. Like, at least I can cut a board now, you know? But back then, I'd be kind of worried about whether to cut the board or whether to cut my hand. So, so here we're told that you ought not to be taken, what? By surprise. But rather, we're of sons of the light. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be, what? Sober. So if this time is not supposed to overtake us like a thief in the night, there potentially are going to be indicators to let us know that the end times are upon us. We're going to talk about those in the next couple weeks as we go. Okay? But for now, let's consider this statement. Then God, just from Genesis 1, 14, part of creation. Remember what, what Peter said about going all the way back to creation? Okay? Then God said, let there be lights in the firmament, of the heavens to divide the day from the night. And let them be for signs and seasons for days and for years. When we always ask about why were the sun and the moon put there, we talk about, oh, divide the, the day from the night. To, to give us the, you know, a day. And, and while well, we do weeks from it, we do months from it, and we do years from it. But you know what? God said, all the way from the beginning, that they were ultimately to be signs. You know what these words sign is actually of prophetic signs. It is the word that is used for the, the rainbow 
which was put into the sky as a sign of the covenant. The foreskin was cut off for the, uh, the Mosaic covenant as a sign of the covenant. There were other indicators uh, that were given by God, miraculous signs to testify that things were really true. This is the word that is being used. That the sun, the moon, the stars were put into the, to the, the sky as signs. Now, I don't derive my, my theology from, from the New Age movement. Okay? So I'm precursor here. However, I believe that Satan likes to take truth and likes it to mix it with air. And we've got to be careful of it. However, there is some things to do it. And you know, back in the 1960s, there was a Broadway musical called Hair, in which the new age, the new world order, was declared. And it says, when the moon is in its seventh heaven, and Jupiter aligns with Mars, then peace will fill the planets, and love will fill the stars. It's the dawning of the age of Aquarius. Do you know what Aquarius is? It's the age of peace. Now, what's interesting is, now this is all extra-biblical. Now, understand this is not revelation. Don't write this down in your Bible. Don't hold, hold your faith to this. I find it as interesting confirmation, if you would, about what the scriptures are declaring, and we'll talk about this in a moment. And that is that astrology, now you're going to find this, I find this very interesting. I, I wrote a huge paper on the New Age movement, okay? And so I had to read all these books by Bhagwan Rajneesh and, and all these things. And so, um, in astrology, there are things called star ages. Does anybody know how long a star age lasts? 2,000 years. My guys know because I talk about it too much. Anyways, 2,000 years. It's 2,000 years. Does anybody, other than my family, want to guess how many star ages there have been? Go ahead. That's exactly right. Do you know what they were, Christopher? Come on, buddy. Hang, do you do it. Come on. What was the first one? No, no. What was the name of it? It was the age of, it was the age of Aries. Aries is a ram. Okay. Then there was the age of Taurus. Taurus is the bull. We're currently in the age of Pisces. What's Pisces? A fish. Now, it's interesting that at each one of those star ages, the primary object of worship, if you would, was symbolized by that item. You had the ram. Then you had the bull, which was the ale worship, the golden calf. Yes. Do you know any major religion today that is represented by a fish? Christianity. Kind of an interesting thing there, isn't it? Okay. Now, what I find most interesting thing about that is that most, most, 99.9% of those who, who really follow astrology and get in, get, just get into the New Age movement, are they creationists or are they evolutionists? They're evolutionists. And so they should believe in how many star ages? A whole lot of them. But they only have three. So if each one of them are 2,000 years old, how, 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 many ages, how many years is that? 6,000. Isn't that interesting? Now, hold that thought to yourself, okay? So, anyways, in the age of Aquarius is the age of peace. I believe the next age that is to come is the millennium. It's the period of rest. And so, there was a guy years ago called Benjamin Cream, who was the new age John the Baptist, who declared that, now again, I'm not putting stock in this, but Messiah was born. Okay, and this is back in the 40s, 50s, that they believed that Messiah was born back then. Okay, and so, 
Just kind of an interesting stuff. This is just all side stuff, okay? This is not biblical, okay? Okay? This is just side stuff. Isn't it interesting, though, that the world on that side, the false religions that are out there, they are preparing for what? The end times. And we're told, and we're going to look at this when we get into Paul, but that there is going to be a strong delusion. And Jesus says in Matthew 24, and we'll get that when we talk about Jesus, that, that the, this, this Antichrist is going to be able to do so many things that if it was possible, he would be able to deceive even the very elect. Okay? So, just be careful. Now you say, okay, now that's all interesting. Now that all comes from the signs of the stars and the stuff like that. Okay? But look at what Exodus 20 says. Some of you have heard me share this before. But it says, in the middle of the Ten Commandments, it says about the Sabbath day, to keep it holy, right? It says, for in six days God created, Yahweh made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. But note that the word in is how? In italicies. Check your Bible. You'll find out that yours is in italicies too. Whenever you see a word in a literal translation, not paraphrases, they don't worry about doing that for you. But in a literal translation, like the King James, New King James, New American Standard, whenever the translator became an interpreter and he placed in an extra word because he thought that was needed in order for it to make sense, they put it in italicies. In other words, this word is not in the Hebrew. Rather, in the Hebrew, what this says, and yes, I know Hebrew, it says that God created the earth for six days in the seventh day to rest. Now, I studied this years ago, and I, and I just couldn't believe my eyes. I mean, I'm, I was studying this passage, and I was going through it, and, and, and I translate. I like to translate things on my own without the crutch of other things, and then come back and check myself out. And I preached this one day, not as preaching that when Christ is coming, but about when you study something out, and all of a sudden you find something, what do you do with it? Right? So I shared this, and at the end of the message, a guy came up to me, Barrett Bowden. Some of you know Barrett. And Barrett, if you don't know Barrett, Barrett, I mean, Barrett is very studious. Barrett is a whole lot smarter than some people realize. I mean, the guy is incredible. And uh, he's taught himself Greek. He's very learned. He's very well read. And he came up to me at the end of the message. And he says, have you been reading Barnabas? And I said, no. What do you mean? He says, Barnabas is the of the Ephesians. Now, I had it. I have it in my library. But I hadn't read it. He says, because Barnabas himself has declared that. And so in Barnabas, what is considered chapter 15, verse 3 and 4, of his, of his uh, epistle to the Ephesians. Now again, Barnabas, the writing of Barnabas is not what? It's not scripture. Okay? It's not. So I don't have that down on your sermon note sheets as even a reference. Because I don't want you to get that confused with that I think that this is scripture, this is not scripture. But Barnabas is that Barnabas that you read about in the book of Acts. And this is his letter to the believers of Ephesus. And this is what he stated about this. Of the Sabbath, he that is God speaketh in the beginning of the creation. And God made the works of his hands in six days, and he ended it on the seventh day, and rested on it, and hallowed it. Give heed, children, that what this means. He ended in six days. He meaneth this, that in six thousand years the Lord shall bring all things to an end, for the day with him signifieth a thousand years. And this he himself beareth me witness, saying, Behold, the day of the Lord shall be a thousand years. Therefore, children, in six days, that is, in six thousand years, everything will come to an end. Isn't that interesting? So people say, 
the imminency of the return of Christ. I believe in the imminency of the return of Christ, but I believe as well that there is a timetable that God has given to us and that the earth itself is recorded to us to be a sign. And so we read in Hosea chapter 6, verse 2, that God is telling the, the nation of Israel, after two days, he will revive us. Who's us? Israel. And on the third day, he will restore us. After about 2,000 years, Israel will be revived. On the third day, the beginning of the three, that third thousand year, Israel will be restored to power. Israel ceased being a nation when? When the temple was destroyed, when Jerusalem was sacked. That was when? 60 AD, 70 AD, somewhere there. Approximately almost 2,000 years later, what happened? Israel was revived. And God says that at the beginning of that 3,000th year, they will be restored to power. When will Israel ever be fully restored to power and be the world empire? Say again? When Christ returns to sit upon the throne of David. When the king returns. I'm not picking a day. I'm not picking an hour. I haven't even told you a month. Okay? But the encouragement to you is, through all this, is that Jesus Christ is coming back. It's not a mystery with God. There is no confusion with God. There is a system, and there is a timetable. And according to my renderings, I believe that I am living in the day of his return. That if I live a normal lifespan, that Jesus Christ is coming back in my lifetime. Now, I'm not going to pick the day or the hour. I don't know it. There are more things that I could potentially tell you. And maybe we might share when we get to the book of Daniel. But Jesus Christ could come today. It's a fact. I'm not saying he's coming today. I'm not saying he's coming this year. And I'm not saying that's why I'm preaching in the book of Revelation. But he could come before we even could leave here today. And you have to ask yourself, do you really believe it? Or is this just all good stuff? There's a prophecy conference going on in town right now down in Bethany Chapel. You can go down and get some good stuff too. And I like Steve Hertzik was down there. It's amazing. We were at Sconyers with, with somebody else. And, uh, we had a, a speaker, national speaker for the Homeschool Association come. And we took her to, down to Sconyers and with a couple other couples on the board. And we were sitting there. And there's this guy walked by. And I'm like, boy, that sure looks like Steve Hertzik. You know? And some of you don't even know who Steve Hertzik because you need Steve. Read Friends of Israel's magazine. Steve writes for them. He's a, he's a national field director. Anyways, Steve is a great guy. He's a, he's a saved Jew. And, uh, and I'm thinking, what would Steve be doing in town? So anyways, later on, I was talking to Marsha, and I found out that there was a prophecy conference in town, and Steve's, Steve's speaking down there. And I thought, oh, man, I should have stood up and said it. Hey, Steve! You know? He just probably said, who are you? Anyways, um, but... But he spoke at one of our family camps in the years past, so I've, I've, I've spent time with him in the past. But anyways, but there is a plan. And do you believe it? Do you believe it's going to happen? So, are you a child of darkness? Or are you a child of the light? You've got to ask yourself. If you're a child of darkness, this time's going to come upon you like what? A thief in the night. If you're a child of the light, 
then you're commanded to do what? To watch and be sober. Don't be duped. Quit getting so distracted by the things that are going on in the world. You know what? It doesn't matter to me. Not, it's not a commentary about President Obama or about any of the congressmen or whatever. But it doesn't matter to me what President Bush or President Obama or President whoever after Obama does. We're all pawns, if you would. That we wrestle not against what? Flesh and blood, but against principalities and power. There is a spiritual war that's going on. The timetable is there. Things are going to occur, whether you like it or not. And you are going to live through some of it, whether you like it or not. We'll, we'll talk about that as we go. Jesus very clearly says that there's going to be a period of persecution, a period of, of consternation that's going to happen on the earth. Do you believe that what God has declared will actually come to pass? You prove it by how you live. You prove it by where your focus is. If you really believe that you're living in the end times, and you should always believe you're living in the end times, and I believe that's why some of the things were, were supposed to be sealed to the end, so that people wouldn't be like Barnabas. I think Barnabas' message, you know, God wasn't really wanting that totally out there, because people have, if people back then said, oh, Jesus isn't coming back for another 2,000 years, how would they live? They give themselves to the world, right? But if you believe that the 2,000 years ago was the 2,000th end of it, and we're at 6,000 years if you do the year, do a little... Do, do a little chronology of the Bible, okay? I'll share with mine probably in the next couple of weeks. But you do it. Confirm me on this one, okay? And uh, if you believe that the 6,000 years are coming to, to an end here, okay? And that all these other things may be true. Now, it may not be true, and I could be wrong. In 1,000 years from now, people could be living here saying, yeah, there was this quack back then who thought, you know. And, and that's okay. But as we saw on the men's breakfast, that true teaching is that which points back to what? The Word of God, and inspires us to what? Godliness. Okay? I don't want you to have faith in Bob. Not at all. I want you to look to God's Word. But look, I'm telling you, if this doesn't inspire you to godliness, think, knowing, not just, ah, oh, yeah, it's okay, I thought we believe that. Jesus Christ could come back today. There is nothing to prevent him from coming back today. Do you really want to meet him? Doing the things talking the way you are, involved in the activities that you'll be involved in. I'm not saying be a hypocrite. But if your heart's not right, you've got to get it right. This could be the moment before we go before the, that judgment seat of Christ. Are you ready for Christ's return? What if it were today? On that thought, let's take our hymnals and let's turn to that song, What If It Were Today. What If It Were Today. That's 750.